It is with a great sense of thanksgiving and appreciation that we each come together, I'm sure, this Lord's Day morning, having listened to some of the conversations that have taken place through the times of fellowship already today. Many have enjoyed a very wonderful holiday the other day, and perhaps for some that continues even to this weekend. As we made note last Lord's Day morning, how appropriate it is to express thanksgiving unto God, the very source from whom all the good blessings that we enjoy has come. That very idea perhaps today sits well as we contrast that to one who does not have our best interest at heart. As you can see from the title of the lesson on the wall to my left, we shall give some attention this morning to some biblical information concerning the devil. Might I suggest as we make mention of and think somewhat about the nature of the devil, many questions no doubt can quickly arise. Perhaps you have been asked or have thought yourself, about a host of very pertinent and sometimes difficult to answer questions that might be posed about the devil. Throughout life, we often are asked many great questions. Some of them are physical in their character and in their answers. Others, however, it seems, transcend space and time. They involve the spiritual. They involve that very matter of characteristic involving eternity, the very nature of who and what a human being is, for example. Perhaps as one considers lessons much like that, no doubt, one question that has rested upon all of our minds at one point or another, and likely many times, involves the devil. For after all, think about the questions that maybe a young child has asked you about the devil at some point. Who is he? Where did he come from? How does he work? How does he have any relation at all to God, if any at all? What's his fate? Those are all exceedingly quick questions to ask, and may I suggest they are questions that the Scriptures will aid us to at least approach by virtue of answer. And to that extent, we will direct our attention this Lord's Day morning. What does the Holy Word of God have to say to you and me about the nature of the devil, his work, his origin, his fate, the way in which he operates? I'd submit to you that given the nature of who this being is, and in fact the character of his desire for all, namely you and me, we would do well to be familiar with our enemy. Any person who is of consideration of military matters will quickly inform any of us that a great knowledge of the enemy is vital. To pose a proper plan of attack to thwart and defeat that one, and it is no different with regard to the devil. You and I would do well to know as much about him as we can so that we are aware of his wiles, that we are aware of his ploys and tactics, and that we should be better able to defeat, to thwart, and to avoid the nature of what he has in store for us. Well, those ideas stated, though, might we quickly state that every grain and every element of human speculation and opinion and thought with concern to the devil is of no usefulness and no importance. Indeed, he is a spirit being, and as such, there is no science experiment that you and I can do that will reveal him to us in ways separate and apart from the revelation of the Word of God. No wonder Paul said, What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. Is it any wonder that the king of ancient times in Jeremiah 37, 17 said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, Yes, Zedekiah, there is, and you're not going to like it. Today, you and I, in many ways, will not like the revelations about the devil, but we need to learn it and be familiar with it and use it. And there are, by the way, some things that are very comforting from what the Bible says about him. 
One other passage that I've also listed is that one in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse number 3. Might we remember that all things that pertain unto life and godliness have been revealed. Every element then of information that you and I need to know concerning the devil is found within the pages of this book. With that said, let us then turn and begin our lesson more critically by first considering his name. Isn't it interesting quite often in the scriptures that you and I can learn much about an individual or being by a study of the name given to that individual or being? It should be no different here. The Bible gives us many descriptive names for the devil. In Revelation 12 verse 9, the very last book in the entirety of the Word of God, we quickly learn on that occasion about the nature of that this one was cast out of heaven. Who was cast out? The great dragon, the devil, called Satan, the great adversary of the world. And in addition, he is described as the deceiver of the entire world. He was cast out and those that, were, that are his followers. Now, much has been said in that brief text, but notice several of the names given to this one that was cast out of heaven. First, he is called the devil. That very word itself means slanderer. That is to say, one who has malicious intent to employ gossip and language to the hurtful and purposeful destruction of another. That's the first thing we learn about the devil. His name involves slander. One who employs destructive gossip and verbiage to willfully destroy and hurt another. In addition, note another term. He's also called Satan in the same text, S-A-T-A-N. That word Satan, as you can see, means adversary. He is the adversary of God as well as the adversary of man. He opposes, he resists, he is the enemy, adversary. We immediately learn something rather vital in that this adversary has no willful good thought at all about the will of God and its accomplishment. In fact, he opposes it. Notice also another word employed in this same book of the Bible, two chapters earlier. In Revelation 9 verse 11, we encounter there this bottomless pit and this king over that bottomless pit is called in the Hebrew tongue, Abaddon. In the Greek tongue, it's Apollyon. In our study of the Revelation on Sunday evening, we learned that that word, either of them, be it the Hebrew or the Greek version, means destroyer. We learn that this one who is identified for us as this Abaddon, this Apollyon, this devil, this Satan is a destroyer. He seeks not to build anything up. He seeks to destroy it, to tear it down, to willfully bring it to naught. So far, just by virtue of his name, the picture that we are gaining about this one is exceedingly negative. Let us look further. We also observe in 2 Corinthians 6.15 as well as several other texts in both the Old and New Testament that there is another name and employed and it is Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L. And more than once a given individual was called the son of Belial. Who is Belial? We will search in vain to find any man by that name in all of the scriptures to whom that could be referring but rather, given that over the centuries there were various ones spoken of, we learn from its meaning on the one hand, as well as the way in which the context leads us in another. This is another descriptive name for the devil. 
For note with me that the word Belial means worthless. Worthless. Able to serve no useful, productive purpose. It's worthless. And as such, in 2 Corinthians 6.15, it stands directly opposed to the righteousness of God. For indeed, in that text in which we are asked, can one who is a son of Belial have communion or fellowship with Christ? Christ, on the one hand, is the perfect example, and that which is of good stands opposed to this worthless one, this son of Belial, this Belial, but yet perhaps another. Even to his own face, Jesus on one occasion was accused of something. Do you recall with me that on more than one instance, Jesus himself was told that you're casting out demons by Beelzebub. Now that was an incredible insult to Jesus. You and I can learn much about the character of his response, but might we note, who is this Beelzebub? That's a Philistine word that means Lord of the Flies. It came to represent and to describe the one who was the Lord or King of the demons, none other than Satan himself. Believe it or not, the Son of God on that occasion was accused of working by the power of the devil. Though those who accused him had no conception of the great blasphemy that they were uttering, Jesus knew it. And no wonder he, with clear-cut logic, crushed their argument and proved to them that it could not have been the case that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Perhaps one final one to note from the text back in the book of Revelation. Notice that there are two other words utilized, and one is deceiver. The deceiver of the whole world. Note with me that though we've learned already that his means are that of destruction, his concept is that of opposing God, and he is one who slanders. Let us not forget that the means by which he operates involves deception. He does not come clean, if we may use that old phrase. He will lie, he will mislead, he will deceive, he will beguile. He's crafty. In fact, the very word deceiver means one who leads astray purposefully. He, with absolute malicious and willful intent, will lead astray all who are willing to follow his dupes and to follow him along the pathway to destruction. And in that way, the very next verse informs us he is the accuser of our brethren. We noted earlier he's the slanderer, one who speaks maliciously and with gossip. And notice that he accuses he has the audacity to stand and directly accuse the faithful and to do so even before the halls of heaven at least on one occasion. You see, this one whom we describe might well be thus summarized in these terms, putting together some of what we've just learned from his name. It's fair to say that this one is thus the devil and stands as the critical chief adversary of God and of all that God supports of all that God upholds, of all that God, in fact, is willing to call noble and that of honor. This one, thus, is the chief enemy of God, and not only that, of man as well. Some of the texts that lead us to appreciate that opening point might well be these. In Matthew 13, Jesus told seven parables, as they're recorded there. One of them, however, is the parable of the tares. During the course of that parable, we remember that there was an enemy who came and sowed tares amongst the wheat. As Jesus gave the interpretation of that parable, he said, the devil is the one who sowed the tares. 
May we thus immediately see that God had as his intent the sowing of good, precious wheat seed and it would bring forth a powerful and worthy crop. The devil sowed the tares. He opposed God's will. He opposed God's work and strove, in fact, at great length to bring it to naught. In Acts the 13th chapter, there on that first missionary journey, Paul, you might remember, and Barnabas had come to the island the island in the Mediterranean, and there they encountered a sorcerer, a man named Elymas. Elymas opposed the work of God because there was a deputy there who desired, his name being Sergius Paulus, to learn the will of God. This sorcerer, though, opposed Paul and Barnabas and their preaching of the truth to this desirous and worthy man. When Paul addressed him, he said, "'You child of the devil, you opposer of all that is righteous.'" Do we not learn thus a great deal? This devil opposes righteousness, and he does so with great energy and zest and zeal. Finally, might we also appreciate Zechariah 3, verse 1. In the Old Testament, we are given this vision in the days of Zechariah. And on that occasion, the vision was this. There was Joshua, the high priest on the one hand, standing prepared and ready to defend the cause of God and to carry forth his work amongst these people who had returned from captivity. But standing in direct opposition, Zechariah also saw Satan. He opposes the work of God. We ought never then to allow ourselves to be so deceived to think that even for a moment, that which may appear noble and good, though it comes from Him, may well be so, for it isn't. It will ultimately lead to that which is disastrous, absolutely catastrophic for the work of God. But not only did we mention He opposes God, He also opposes man. Man is the chief creation of God. He was made in the very image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.26, and furthermore, that very creation is one for whom God saw so much that He sent His Son to die. Satan has lived in opposition thus to the well-being of man ever since. Some of the texts that lead us to those conclusions. Notice in Job chapters 1 and 2, Job was a righteous, pious man. And yet who accused him before God? Satan. It was Satan who in fact accused Job of living in such a way that it was not genuine or sincere. God, He only serves you because you bless Him so. It isn't because His heart is desirous of serving you. He does it with feigned motives. He does it with insincerity. God knew better, of course. But yet consider another example of this one who, in fact, is that very enemy of man. It was a text that Brother Colonel read in our hearing just a few minutes ago. Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. Whose adversary? We know he's God's, but there the adjective you are implies you and me. He's our adversary, and he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. A lion does not, in fact, seek to procure prey for the purpose of playing with it, for the purpose of utilizing it to improve its characteristics and make it more healthy. He has as his desire the absolute devouring and destroying it, the slaying of it, and it is no different with the devil. Already by virtue of his name and by virtue of these conclusions therefrom, might we use these to then see more about his work. What is his work and how does he go about accomplishing it? First, 
since his desire is the destruction of mankind, notice in the spiritual way he does that by deceiving and by temptation. We noted earlier he's the deceiver of the whole world and he slanders. Well, notice how he brought that to bear in the life of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, went into the wilderness to be tempted of who? The devil. Here was the tempter appearing in a way in which the desire was to crush the spiritual life of our Savior, to cause him to violate the will of God. Thus, he posed three dramatic and rather powerful temptations, and in each instance, our Savior overcame them. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, a very similar scene appears where again he's called the tempter. Might we see then that as he deceives, he seeks to tempt. Might I remind each of us that those temptations he presented before Jesus are dramatic and powerful in their meaning. Turn these stones into bread if you be the Son of God. Notice the temptation therein. Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting a month and a half. As such, he was greatly desirous of physical food and nourishment, but yet the temptation was to place that higher in priority than your service to God. Jesus was able by his nature and usage of the Word of God to see through the temptation and knew that even though physical nourishment in and of itself isn't wrong, the placing of it above service to God is... Jesus quoted Scripture from the Old Testament, and the temptation was gone. Two more times Satan tempted Jesus on that occasion, and two more times the Savior defeated him. Might we thus see that temptation is a matter of deception, placing before us something that we will catch on to and follow, even though we may rationalize and lead ourselves to believe it's not hurtful, it is. It has no good end to it. May we see temptation clearly for what it is and who is its, or, its originator, Satan. God does not tempt. James 1 verse 13, we noticed that in our Bible class this morning. Satan is the originator of temptation. But may we also see something else about the work that he does. John 8 verse 44, this deceiver, Jesus there himself said, he is the father of all liars, and in fact he's been a murderer from the beginning. Can we not see that he has no interest in spiritual life? He is a murderer thereof. The things we read thus about Satan, this devil, have caused us to understand very clearly that though he is a spirit being and you and I cannot see him with a physical eye, he is as real as any other entity. And he, we must be carefully on guard for him. Consider something else. Having painted the picture then of this evil one, perhaps a question that has risen in the mind of so many has been, where did he come from? How did he originate this way? Where is the source of this devil? May I submit to you that it would seem we can piece together some information to give answer to that question. First, let us know that God is the creator of all things. Through the agency of Christ, we read in Colossians 1 verse 16 that by Him, for Him, and through Him were all things created. That doesn't leave out anything in heaven, earth, or anywhere else. Now, we easily know as well that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, Habakkuk 1.13. And furthermore, He has no countenance or dwelling with the wicked, Psalm 5 verse 4. 
we thus can quickly conclude God did not create Satan in his present evil form. God, in fact, was able to say in Genesis 1.31 that all that he had created was very good. That certainly could not be descriptive of the devil. What then might we conclude? That Satan has changed. Originally, he was not fashioned or formed in this evil way in which he now is. However, by he, by his own choice, has chosen to be the way he is. In Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, we have a rather amazing text that sets before us the fact that the angels were also created by God. Amongst those angels, we learn in the New Testament about this one who had a desire not to remain in the station in which he was fashioned and made. It would seem from Jude verse 6 that the angels themselves occupy positions or rank. That is, there's a hierarchy of angelic beings. Satan, as originally an angel, was not pleased with the station given to him. He wasn't satisfied and he chose not to maintain that habitation, Jude verse 6. Rather, what did he proceed to do? He proceeded to rebel against the law of heaven. Might we easily learn another gigantic lesson? Namely, that there was a will of God in heaven just as surely as there's will of God upon earth. God's law abides everywhere His will proceeds. There were angels who chose to rebel against His will in heaven, and hence they sinned. In fact, that's the very word used in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. We understand that sin is a violation of God's law. And hence, where there is sin, there must be divine law. Satan and a host of those who chose to follow with him rebelled against God's decree concerning their station, and in pride they lifted themselves up and rebelled. In fact, there's a warning given in 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 to you and me to not allow pride like that to deceive and to cause us to fall astray. Specifically, that was given in that text that relates to elders not to appoint a novice, lest in pride he be lifted up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride's a disastrous thing. This Satan, this angel, lifted himself up, and in fact several followed with him. God did not tolerate that rebellion and cast him out of heaven. Not only he, but also all those who chose to rebel with him. That, in fact, was the text of which we read in Revelation 12. Remember, the great dragon was cast out. And earlier in the text of 2 Peter 2, verse 4, God cast him and these angels that sinned out. Notice that God didn't tolerate the rebellion, cast him out, and he has maintained this opposition to God ever since. As that screen closes, Note with me the grave danger thus that follows when one lifts oneself up inappropriately in pride to pursue that which is not one's position to pursue. It would be fair to say in terms of summary, at least of this point of his origin, the following things on this screen. Notice that once cast out, he maintained this evil, disastrous, slanderous work against God and all that is noble. And to that end, we might well say that the Bible frequently makes note of these very facts. The texts I mentioned earlier were primarily New Testament in their origin. The Revelation, Second Peter. But there is in fact one rather notable hint to that even in Job 4 verse 18 
when even one of Job's friends made note of the fact that here there was once rebellion where an angel was cast out of heaven. That seems to refer again to this devil. But having seen then that his decree and his place is of his own choice, he had every opportunity to be faithful and noble to God as the majority of the angels, but he chose not to. He chose in pride to rebel. That rebellion cost him heaven. It cost him his place and his dwelling there. We can already see, though, that once being cast out, he did maintain an element of power, an element of strength. Let us, in fact, notice just how strong he, in fact, is. I've listed some passages for your consideration. First, might we observe that he is indeed powerful, but not so much so as God. For notice, God cast him out. If he were as powerful as God, he would have fought and maintained his place in heaven, apparently. But that was not to be. He was cast out, and as such, he has a degree of power with regard to the things of earth. Consider some statements of the Scriptures that lead us to that conclusion. First, note the various descriptions in John 12, verse 31, where Jesus even made note that I saw as lightning him fall from heaven. On another occasion, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, note his power. He's there described as the prince of the air. Princes have power. They have jurisdiction and they have authority, and so too it is with the devil. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he's called the God, little g, of this world. Even Paul made observation that so many follow in the masses behind him. He has an exceedingly large group that are his followers. That means he alone is a very powerful one, but not as powerful as God. It might be fair to say also that his disciples are numbered with the following language. I've listed two passages for your consideration. One, Matthew 4, verse number 9. On that occasion, notice with me, Jesus himself, on the occasion of his temptation, remember the devil said, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you the whole world. Now, it's fair to say that Satan could not have given what he did not possess. You see, the vast majority of the world are his followers. The vast majority follow after him, pursue him, and as such, Satan was willing to offer all of it. If only Jesus would fall in worship. Later, isn't it true that in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that there are few, in, in fact, that follow that narrow way that leads to life, but many there be which go in thereat through that wide gate that leads to destruction. You see, there are many. The power is thus seen in other ways too because notice that God restrained him isn't it interesting in the books like Revelation that we've studied for some length on Sunday evening? We notice in Revelation 20 that he was bound and in fact cast into that great bottomless pit for a thousand years. That tells us that his power is not limitless. God, through Christ, bound him. Matthew 12, 29, Mark 3, 27, Luke chapters 11 and 12 all inform us that Jesus bound him because one stronger than the strong man has come. May we never forget that though Satan is powerful, he, cannot, he is not such that he cannot be defeated. He's not such that he cannot be beaten. Some of the last things perhaps to observe. 
then that as Christians we have the obligation, in fact, the earnest and sincere duty to resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Those famous words in James chapter 4. Is it not thus such as you and I can appreciate that there is a great God in heaven who loves and appreciates us and desires our being with him forevermore? But standing in opposition, just as it was in Zechariah 3, is one who in fact says just the opposite. You follow me. I'll give you pleasure. I'll give you sensuality and happiness here on earth. Don't think about the spiritual. Focus on the material for the here and now. Notice that, again, that's a deception. He doesn't have our best interest at heart. He doesn't have for you and me a consideration of what is more noble and useful in the here and now and in the hereafter. Perhaps another text in Ephesians 4 verse 27. We are told there to give no place to the devil. That's a direct command of Scripture. Notice he doesn't say perhaps or you should not. He said you by command give no place to the devil. You see, he deceives, and hence when we allow a little place for him, he will soon take more. Have you heard the old expression, give him an inch and he'll take a mile? Never truer words were stated concerning the devil than that. The smallest amount, the slightest, and perhaps the most innocent entry will soon lead to catastrophe. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, we read of that grand discussion of the panoply of God, the one who is to be God's soldier. Notice there are many things with which he is to be armed. But why is he to be armed? Because you need to resist the wiles of the devil. No wonder we need the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and to have our loins girt about with truth and to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need all of that since the devil is crafty and subtle and wily. He will make inroads in whatever means is our weakness. We thus need to be armed fully and completely. Notice in Revelation 12 verse 11, he can be defeated. It is by virtue of three-pronged attack concerning the word of God, the blood of the Lamb, and a consideration of not lifting our life and its importance above the will of heaven. To say all those things is to say that there's only one question that's left. What's his fate? We have seen that he was cast out of heaven due to his own rebellion. But what about his eternal fate? Might I suggest to you that on Sunday evenings we have seen that in dramatic detail in the last two to three Sundays. But to summarize or review that completely... He is currently reserved in chains in everlasting darkness. We read not only in 2 Peter 2, but also Jude, verses 5 and 6. Now that doesn't mean he has no freedom at all, but that means his fate is sealed. The character of darkness shall be his forevermore. And that darkness is seen most clearly in the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 41. For when the Savior himself said concerning the day of judgment that there are those who have been the followers of him who will find their abode in that place prepared for the devil and his angels. A place of preparation. You see, God is making ready a place for this one. This one whom we've described today is Satan, the adversary, the devil, the deceiver, and the accuser of our brethren. Finally, could we not see that it is described for us in Revelation chapter 20? 
as a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And we know that because in that very verse and in Revelation 20 verse 10, he, namely the devil, is cast into this place and John sees it. John, what you see, write in a book. John wrote what he saw and he saw on this fi final and faithful day the devil and all those who are his followers are cast into this lake burning with fire and brimstone. It's a fair thing to conclude in Revelation 20:15 that again, those that are his followers are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Which brings us to the conclusion of the summary of our lesson today. We've learned much about the devil or have reminded ourselves much about him. In summary, we can say this. He is real. Though the, by the television may present him as something in, in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns, we make a grave error if that's all we think the devil is. He's not a cartoon character. He's not one who is to be trifled with or to consider as trivial or insignificant. For in fact, as we've seen today, he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the very opposer of you and me and of all that God supports. He would wish nothing more than to bring as many as possible to be with him in that place prepared for him and his angels. May I suggest that today that we need to work laboriously through life, sacrificing all if necessary to make sure our name is in the book of life so that we can avoid the place where he will be, that place burning with fire and brimstone. Who is the devil? He is your arch enemy and mine. Where did he come from? He had every intent to be good and opportunity to do so originally, but he chose in pride to rebel against God. Have you rebelled against God to this point in your life? Have you failed to submit to the humble plan of salvation uttered from the lips of God's precious Son? If we could be an agent to aid you today in your response to that gospel invitation, we'd love to do so. We'd be happy even today to acknowledge your belief and repentance and to aid you in your confession of the name of Jesus and to also aid you in your immersion for the forgiveness of sins. If we could do that today, we would certainly find great enjoyment in it and your life will never be the same again. If, on the other hand, you have become a member of the body, the body of Christ, those who are the very enemies of Satan, this devil, but you've allowed him back in your life. He has worked his way back in, perhaps in as crafty a way as he did to Eve in Genesis 3 verse 1. Come back to that first love. We will pray with you and for you that your sins would be forgiven, and God will be there in strength to aid you day by day so that you can keep Satan at bay. Today, if we could assist you in your obedience to the gospel, will you not let that be known publicly, even now, while together we stand and while we sing?